HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kara Warren. And on today's episode, we have Michaela, Nathan, and Lissa from Mouse Hole Cheese Shop, a new shop located in Albuquerque, New Mexico. They've been monumental in New Mexico's artisan cheese scene, working hard to organize and coordinate legislation for raw milk rights to help their state's dairy farmers. Uh, Michaela, Nathan, Lissa, welcome to the show. I'm, I'm super stoked to have you guys. Welcome. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah, so this is going to be nifty because there's three of you and you have a lot of really cool points. And I am just excited to explain to the listeners who you are. So if you could tap one of you to go first and talk a little bit about yourself. Hello, my name is Nathan Sassetta Halliday. Um, I am one of the uh, two partners who are over here, my wife and I at the Mouse Hole Cheese Shop, um, a, uh, a Corrales boy who grew up out here and um, moving back to Albuquerque, my wife and I wanted to really uh, get involved in the food scene and the local production of that, both with the restaurant and later on with this cheese shop to focus on some New Mexico products. And that's kind of how we came into the mouse hole uh, and uh, and making sure that we're pushing forward on some local uh, produce that we really care about. That's awesome. And, and actually, then I'll pivot to Michaela. And I also have the follow up question is, were either of you from New Mexico, like originally, or you just, you kind of moved over there? Yeah. So, um, my name is Michaela Kennedy, a co-owner with Nathan of the Mouse Hole Cheese Shop. I am originally from Dallas, Texas. Um, however, Nathan is from Corrales, which is a little village outside of Albuquerque. Um, very rural, I would say, mm-hmm. and, uh, just a cute little kind of semi country outside of Albuquerque. Um, but yeah, so I'm originally from Dallas. I moved out to Los Angeles, uh, after graduating college, that's where I met Nathan. And, uh, we both kind of fell in love with each other through uh, food and discovering new restaurants and new recipes, and then finding a little cheese shop at the end of our street in studio city, um, Los Angeles. So that's oh, wow. okay. me and, you know, we care a lot about uh, local food and uh, kind of our journey from food transitioned into caring a lot about cheese and where we are today. Great. And then 
you know, Lissa was the one who reached out and, and kind of found me. Lissa, you're a cheesemonger at the shop and that's how, and you came into, how, is that how you came into play with Mousehole? That is exactly right. Yeah. I would call myself a baby cheesemonger. Uh, <laughs> we have been open now just over a year and I have been tracking my hours in order to sit for the CCP exam. And uh, so I'm probably about almost at 2000 hours after this first year. So I'm hoping that maybe I'll be able to sit this next year. It's exciting. It's exciting. I mean, to take the CCP is such a, a big part of a cheesemonger's life. It really uh, sets a focus to what you do and how important it is to do it. So I'm psyched to hear that you're, you're interested in doing that. Um, I'm curious now, with the Mousehold Cheese Shop, uh, Michaela and Nathan, what, what – because you just wanted to bring good cheese there. You love cheese. I, I understand you're foodies, but like – Albuquerque, New Mexico. Like I know nothing about Albuquerque, New Mexico. Like I am, I'm so excited to hear that there's a new shop there. What, what, why did you want to do that? And and, and I think you mentioned maybe already, or maybe not. You you opened it a few years ago. Is that like two years ago, max? Is that what we're at right now? Um, We actually just opened up last October 28th of uh, 2023. So we're, or of 2022. So we're just over a year now. Um, uh, which is very exciting, but a year and a couple months probably by the time this airs. Uh, yeah. And the main reason and focus on that is Michaela and I, kind of where we find our passion uh, with each other is is also bringing forward things that aren't really available in our areas or that we haven't seen um, really kind of featured or like showcased or, or, or kind of uh, concentrated on. Uh, and so one of the big things is there there is no other cheese shop, um, in Albuquerque, uh, at all. There, there used to be a wonderful cheese shop up in Santa Fe called Cheesemongers, Um, but they ended up closing through COVID, um, just due to, you know, hardships and limitations on what they were able to do out of a small cheese shop in that area. Um, and we were hoping that they were going to be open to further that even more. So there would be two or three cheese shops in the state by the time we were open, but um, they ended up not being available. And Michaela and I, regardless, still want to make sure that those things are available because we care about it and people should have access to good things like that and not have to go to your standard grocery store or Trader Joe's or, you know, where the experience is just missing or lacking in that, in that interaction, like a personal interaction with someone. And, and we like creating small kind of family owned, really like homegrown grassroots style of those shops. Um, our restaurant was in a very similar light. And so we, we want to, we wanted to bring that to Albuquerque where it was an approachable, small, you know, 900 square foot cheese shop. Hence the name. <laughs> I love that. The mouse hole. Yeah, yes. exactly. The mouse hole. All 900 feet of it. <laughs> so clever. Um, even as I've been typing it, I just am like, that is a really cozy, cute, cool name. Good job, you guys. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so has nice. the community of Albuquerque been digging the cheese? I mean, have they? is this the first time they're getting exposure to maybe some imported cheeses? So the local community in Albuquerque has been super amazing. They're really supportive. Um, when we had our... Uh, our restaurant there, they've always come through and been really supportive of local, um, whether it's artisans or makers or, or, you know, chefs and restaurants. 
the community here is super strong. And um, so we've seen a lot of support and a lot of encouragement and excitement around the cheese shop and, and some classes that we've done and some pairings we've done. Um, they're definitely interested and, and I think they want to see more. Uh, there was, of course, you know, the cheese shop in Santa Fe as well as there was a cheese shop in Albuquerque, but I think it's been over 10 years since that was around. Um, so there are a lot of people that haven't been introduced to a lot of styles of cheeses, but from what we've seen, they have been very open and, uh, you know, interested in learning more about that. So I think that a lot of people that are coming in haven't quite seen some of the stuff we're doing, but, uh, they're, they're down for it. So that's that's, good. That's yeah, no, that's really great to hear. And I, right. Of course it's probably a local scene there. And, and actually that brings us around to the topic that we kind of got introduced for, which is, um, you are helping your dairy farmers by, um, working with policymakers and, uh, you know, I mean, this is not something I generally get to talk about on the show is legislation and ordinances. And so I would like for uh, one of you to kind of explain like what happened. Uh, is it a few months ago now? I mean, it's it's been like a, a little bit of time where in New Mexico, you were helping one of the dairy farmers that you buy from. And it would be better if you talk about it, because I think the details are amazing. But I, I know you know the story way better than I do. So I'd love for you to tell the listeners more about how you're helping your state with um, raw milk legislation, really. Sure, I'll take that. Um, So I was working at the cheese counter and, you know, we had more and more people coming in asking for local artisanal cheese. And there's really no local artisanal commercial cheesemakers in New Mexico right now. There has been historically um, COVID wiped out like the last couple of them, and it's been really hard for them to be sustaining. So in trying to do studying outside of, you know, being at the cheese counter, I was trying to figure out why, why don't we have more local cheeses? And especially since that's such a commitment of Nathan and Michaela's here at the Mousehold that we carry, you know, local products and that we try to source everything locally. And, um, and, you know, I, one of the things I did is we, there, the rest of the state, other than Albuquerque, raw milk was legal to sell and, and to distribute. And so there was one major raw milk producer that's in a, a town called Bosque Farms, which is about a 40 minute, between 20 and 40 minute drive to the south. And so I went down there and trying to learn more about cheese and, and figure out how I'm going to, you know, be able to sell it better at the counter and um, struck up a conversation with Erica, who um, Michaela also followed on social media. And Erica and Mike Desmet were the owners of these of the of the um, dairy down there. Erica is the only female Hispanic uh, dairy producer in the state of New Mexico, and she's just she's a, she's a firecracker. She's amazing. She you know she knows all of her cows' names, and she's always out with them, and she'll give you a tour on a moment's notice. So I talked to her and I was like, what would it take to get you to make cheese? And she said, you know, we actually have a barn we could convert, but I need two things. First, it'd be really great if we could actually sell and distribute in the city of Albuquerque, because that's where most of our market is. And two, I'd like some help with like grant writing. And I was like, she's like, cause I don't have time. I got two kids. I got all these things I'm doing. And she's like, it's just been, you know, it's not staring as hard work you every single day, you know, there's something. Mm-hmm. And so I took that back to the cheese counter and was telling the other cheesemongers and sort of talking about it. And one day the mayor, it was around mother's day. The mayor came in, um, Tim Keller, 
And he asked, uh, he was picking up a board. He wanted to get his wife, uh, Kisten, a, a, one of our boards to go. And so he placed the order and I was like, Hey, Mayor Keller, why don't we have raw milk? Why can't we make that, you know, legal in the city of Albuquerque? And I always feel a little bad doing that kind of thing. You know, they just come in and they he just wants to be a real person sometimes and order his cheese board. But I tried to do it in a fairly friendly way. And he was, he was down for it. He was like, you know what, actually I have family and friends who have, who've drank raw milk and really appreciated the, some of the really great benefits that come from safe raw milk of, you know, lower, um, you know, allergies and improved immune systems. And he said, let me, let me look into it. So he came back to pick up the board later that day and said, you know, we have, we have one big barrier and it's one of our internal folks in our environmental health department who's vested and it's not somebody he like has authority over. He didn't hire them. They predated him. He said, and he was trained, you know, many years ago, and there's just a real fear about raw milk being dangerous. And, and so I sort of pushed back a little bit and said, you know, can we, can we try to educate them? Can we talk to them about it and show them the new science and that one of the benefits of raw milk being legal is that we can actually make sure that we test it regularly and make it safe. So it's not this underground, you know, thing that's happening. And he's like, maybe, but, you know, it wasn't his top priority. We have, you know, some other issues that he was trying to address. Mm. And then about two months later, uh, the story goes, yeah, he had a, a list of things that he'd put it on that list and it made it to the top. And he asked one of his staff to give us a call and we just started to run it. And it was uh, approved by the city council on November 20th. And he's going to sign it tomorrow into law. So it's been a process, but that was sort of the original part was working with Erica and one of the dairy farmers to help meet her needs. Cause the logic was if they can make a little bit more money by being able to sell their raw milk, then they'll have the resources to be able to invest, to expand and do other byproducts like cheese making and, and, you know, other things like that. So the more we can do that and in doing this whole process, we, we started to form an organization that's become the New Mexico Cheese Guild and more and more dairy producers came and found us and are now active in that guild. who are also interested in being able to sell their milk first before they make cheese. And, and all because you started, you know, knocking on doors and helping these farmers, this is why this is happening. It's it's really well, isn't that what all cheesemongers do? I thought that's what I was supposed to. <laughs> We're all superheroes. We had no idea, but we have these superpowers. Um, and also, like I think we should also build some tension up into this. It wasn't like an easy vote. Like you and I were talking a few weeks ago, and it could have gone the other way. It wasn't like a slam dunk. Like there was definitely like you were like fingers crossed. It it passes. It wasn't like. <laughs> you know, the, the easiest thing, I think. Right. Well, uh, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I should, I should include that. I, I didn't really give you very much of an introduction. I, I have this history of doing advocacy and policy work in New Mexico. Um, and I, I knew the mayor previously because I had been one of his Senate attendants when he was a senator, a state senator. So we have an ongoing rapport. And I have some experience in this. I used to, and interestingly enough, I used to be a breastfeeding advocacy and researcher. So that's what my background is in. And so I know milk and I know some of the benefits of probiotics and being exposed to the natural cultures that come from milk, just like they do from breastfeeding. So because of that, I sort of had some lay of the land. I had some relationships, people, I understand the process. And, and I know never to count a vote until it happens because things can happen at the last second, you know, 
unexpected, even people who've promised you they're going to vote a certain way can flip. And we had a little bit of that happen with this, but luckily we had enough enough cushion. We did a good job of doing our vote count and talking to everyone and making sure that the right arguments were made to the right people so that they really understood that we ended up getting a 7-2 vote on a nine-person council. So it was it's a veto-proof majority. Um, it ended up being you know a really solid vote. But to my point of things being a little squirrely or unexpected and you can never count on them, one of our co-sponsors was one of the no votes. And that oh. never happens, right? <laughs> like usually somebody who is sponsoring a bill is a cheer, a true champion of it. And he flipped at the last second because he didn't want the one vote. He said, he told us that he didn't want the one person who voted against it to feel like they were being singled out and he wanted to be a contrarian. And I'm like, that's the reason you voted wow. against this. <laughs> I just so, so to your point, yeah, it's, it's not always easy. Politics is complicated. You know, they, the, there's lots of stories about, you never know, want to know how the sausage is made, but, mm-hmm. um, but it's, you know, it worked out and, you know, people came around. I think that they were really moved by the idea that, you know, Raw milk and pasteurization was a, it really was sort of an 18th century solution for an 18th century problem. And it doesn't mean we don't care about, you know, pathogens and, um, you know, bacteria that are dangerous, but we have so many better ways now to test like I'm thinking of Amanda Brown, who's at Brown's Micro Creamery um, up north of Albuquerque, and she has a master's degree, right? Like she is well versed. She's taken biology classes. She's not somebody who's just out there sort of faking it while she's figuring it out. Not to say that there's not wisdom that can't come from families and tradition, but we've lost a lot of that wisdom. And so given that, I think that, you know, we can be a little bit smarter about how we use raw milk in the future in a way that is safe for people, but also doesn't get rid of some of the really great benefits in the both flavor wise, but also, like I said, some of the health benefits that come from it. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's uh, it's a lot of people that usually are anti just don't have enough education or they've had the wrong education. And um, it's tough to hear. Like, I just have to be a listener at that point because I'm like, I don't think it's getting through to you that raw milk is a good thing. So, um, but so uh, to bring it back now, how will you guys celebrate tomorrow when it's signed into law? Will you drink a tall glass of raw milk? Uh, is there an event at the store or are you guys going out somewhere else to celebrate? What's what's happening? Because it's, it's so cool that this happened. We're actually going to be going to the mayor's office, right? Uh, mayor's office on the 11th floor of one of the state buildings to uh, be there for the signing of the bill. So yeah, that's I, our celebration. Eric yeah. is going to be there too from DeSmet. And I told her to bring some raw milk to that we can like stack up on the table so we can get a really good picture. And uh, she, I said, you know, I'm sure the mayor will offer you his pen after he signed the bill. And she's like, I love pens and I will save it forever. <laughs> so, so there'll be a little ceremony. Oh my God. I love it. I love it. And, um, are any of, uh, the guild members also New Mexico guild members? Will any other, uh, guild members be there as well? Yeah, I actually expect that there will be a couple people. Um, we had a subcommittee that was created specifically for this advocacy effort. And so, um, there's a, a woman who owns a local grocery. It's called Albuquerque tiny grocer, and they will likely be carrying the raw milk once it's, um, you know, the, everything, all the paperwork goes through and it's legal. 
And I, they, her name is Liz Gaylor and she's been invited. And then we have two or three other people that have just been really great champions along the way. Either they're looking to be able to sell it or they want to not have to drive 40 miles, you know, out of their way to go get raw milk so that they can actually use that and, and drink it and have it in their family. And so um, we expect to have a small little team that is going to show up and, and is there and ready to celebrate. That's perfect. I love it. Um, and actually now that I, I mean, we kind of hinted about the guild already. And I think that's also really important to mention, um, was the guild, first of all, you, you talk about how it originated, but then also, was it useful for lobbying here? Like, I think we talked about, I love that you said, Lisa, I think you might've said it, um, how, because you were a group, no one person was singled out. And so everyone was able to kind of speak up a little bit more. Um, I, I think that's so important with the state guilds for cheese and, and leg- dairy legislation. Uh, it's it's very smart. So I don't know, Lissa, if that's a, a point for you to talk about or, or Michaela or Nathan. But, you know, I, uh, I would love for someone to talk a little bit about the guild and how it started and, and, and what's happening currently. When we were originally thinking about how to get more local cheeses in New Mexico, we thought it would be great. And I looked at other states that had guilds and I was like, wow, they offer trainings. They create a space for networking. Um, You know, there's some real benefits to this. But, you know, in trying to decide what to do first, we weren't quite sure, like, how would we get people to show up and why would they take us seriously? Like we're creating something from nothing. And then once the raw milk ordinance started to have some momentum, I think that actually created something for us to, to, to come together around. And we were able to attract people who really cared about that issue. So it both served the guild to be working on raw milk. And then on the other side, like you were saying, having a group of people meant that no one person had to like out themselves to say, hey, we've got customers that want raw milk. And, you know, are we having to like try to sell it to them illegally and then like, you know, get rid of it as soon as the inspector shows up and go through all that stress. And then do we want to go testify at a city council meeting and out ourselves that we've been doing this? Or can we have an organization that really represents all of us and kind of creates a buffer, you know, serves as that advocacy, advocacy sort of like arm in a way that provides just a little bit of cover and protection for each of our individual members so it, the raw milk helped the guild and the guild helped the raw milk. Um, it's sort of an old union organizing strategy is never have a single person be the only person who is the face of an issue because you can always attack that person, right? It, 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 it's easy to criticize them and say, what are their motives or what are their backgrounds or did they make a bad move? But if you have an entire team of people, one person gets criticized, somebody else can pop up sort of like whack-a-mole. It's really hard to take any of them down because the whole team is able to to stand up. And we ended up tapping into that when we got a little bit of positive press um, going up, leading up to the vote where, you know, we were able to call one of the producers and say, Hey, it would make amazing B-roll if they could come up and see your clean facility and your happy goats. And they were like, okay, no problem. And so she was on camera. And then we had a county commissioner out outside of the city limits, but he was really, really supportive. And he had just pushed it through at the county level recently. So he wanted to get a little bit of publicity. So he was willing to go on camera. And so because we had this team, we were all able to organize and be able to speak to different legislators, make different arguments, speak to the press. And that's how you get something passed, right? Is just to be able to sort of build work together as a team in a way that is beneficial. 
and and you were able to even get some of the uh older generation too right like it wasn't just like new cheese people it was also like it was everyone right yeah it's been really amazing to see the people that are coming together to build this cheese guild you know lissa started this idea i was it in october of or, last year no oh. of, of this year right or when oh. did the cheese guild develop really and past we had our months. first meeting in september but we didn't we had to like kind of come together a few times before we had bylaws that we could approve so the bylaws were officially approved in october of 2023 okay so you know we've been doing this for not not a super long time. And we've already developed like a pretty good turnout on those who are showing up. It's, um, you know, people who make cheese, but it's also people who are farmers that are interested in potentially making cheese It's educators, um, you know, from CNM, uh, from some restaurant owners, and it's just our small grocery store owners and things like that. So to watch it kind of develop and grow and be able to reach out to everyone's contacts, I feel like we're just going to see it kind of explode in such a positive way because there's so many people in New Mexico, like I said before, who love supporting local, but also uh, people here really tend to lean towards these very uh, detailed aspects of life, which it, to me is, is cheese and, and agriculture. And I mean, I think it was mentioned to me also before, like, um, now, and I, this is a term I also am not that comfortable using the fourth largest milk shed was one. Lisa, this sounds like something you might've said, like, I'm curious to also know the, what that, what is that and for the listeners? And, and also just to give context about New Mexico's background with dairy farming, because I feel like you guys are revitalizing it. And I, I think they should also understand what it might have been like. Just a small note about what it once was a few decades ago, you know? Sure. I mean, it, I, let's get our numbers right, too. I, it's my understanding that we're the fourth or fifth largest milk shed if you remove the border between eastern Texas and, um, sorry, eastern New Mexico and western Texas in the southern part of our state. That whole area is called a milk shed, and that is one of the massive, biggest producers in the nation. Obviously, there's California, Wisconsin, but we're up there as far as being able to produce milk. We also have, I believe, still the largest cheese production facility. At least that's what's on their website. They say that they're the biggest one in the United States. But those are both massive industrial ways of approaching dairying and cheese making. And as I mentioned before, we don't have any artisanal, local, small-scale commercial cheesemakers. So there's this big gap between having the right, you know, temperature, climate, um, topography, uh, you know, all of the things that are really good for cows and goats as far as being able to produce milk. Um, you know, it's really good on their hooves for us to be dry in temperature, even though it gets hot here in the summer, it cools down. There's a joke that like, if you go into the shade in New Mexico, even in the summer, it's a 20 degree difference, right? Mm -hmm. Between the, the, the being in the sun and being in the shade because our humidity is so low. So it's, it's a space that is actually very good for animals and, and dairy animals in, in particular. And we have a rich history in dairying. Uh, what we don't have is an extensive history in cheese making. And there's a couple of reasons for that. 
Um, even though there were a few artisanal cheesemakers over the years, they haven't been able to stay sustainable. And again, there's a lot of theories behind that. And we've been looking into that and we're going to try to make a difference and maybe change that for the future. Yeah, that's, I love that. Um, okay guys, we're going to do a quick sponsor break. So Hey everyone, you're listening to Cutting the Curd. We're here with the Mouse Hole folks, and we'll be right back. All right, welcome back everyone to Cutting the Curd. Um, you're listening to us talk about Mousehole Cheese Shop, the New Mexico Cheese Guild, um, raw milk legislation, which is crazy cool. Um, and I have Michaela, Lissa, and Nathan here to represent all that. And uh, one of the next topics I really am excited to also talk about with them is uh, the idea of uh, finding indigenous cheeses, recipes from New Mexico. And uh, I guess I'd like to pitch this to Nathan, maybe because he hasn't spoken in a while. Uh, but he'll, he might want to pass it too. I'm not sure. But um, I'd love to know, like, how are you guys sourcing these recipe ideas? How are you finding guidance for new cheese, new cheeses to be made? Um, how How is this going forward right now? Yeah. So actually, I would love to talk about that. Um, uh, so as we are diving more into this with the New Mexico Cheese Guild and, and people who are either in southern New Mexico or in the central area where we're at or in northern New Mexico who are raising um, dairy herds, whether it's goat, sheep or cow, um, you know, because we we do have a lot of that milk around, but it's not being produced, as Lisa was saying, in a, in a large scale there's digging that is having to happen or to find the people who are really passionate about this and who want to do this and who are open to talking about this and how they want to, how they want to get their cheese or, or, or dairy herds out because the legislation and any of the laws that have been, uh, in place so far have made it very, very hard for producers, even on a market scale to bring any product of any sort of dairy to market at all. Um, those are small farmer markets. That's everything. There's really like two or so that we've seen at the markets between a Montessori school up in Santa Fe, um, that is producing, but has, it's a Montessori school and I'm sure has some sort of, um, assistance in helping that production happen in Santa Fe, as well as, um, Tucum Carry, a cheese company in, uh, Eastern New Mexico. Um, but other than that, there's not a ton that's on the board, right? So, um, as we continue to dive into this, we found, you know, members of the cheese guild, I think it's Chalanza's farm, right? Is that where Nina is from? Yes. So Chalanza's, which is, um, in Cerrillos, New Mexico, um, just, uh, in the Santa Fe area, not Santa Fe proper at all, but in that general realm, um, who is raising goat, I think all goats, um, and is doing milk and they have a herd share, um, that's, that's happening in order to get milk out and is diving into some of that. Um, there's another cheese shop up in Santa Fe, uh, Picnic, New Mexico, um, who is super passionate about indigenous, um, cheese and, uh, the herd caring and the land share of all of that and being, um, very, very thoughtful to where all that history comes from as well. When we go up into Northern New Mexico, we want to, and I really want to this upcoming year, 
um, get up there when it's in that spring and summer season and the milk is actually being produced. Um, in the northern New Mexico area, we are hearing these underground rumbles of this kind of like cheese group, like culture um, community who they are making, you know, their home cheese makers and they're, um, and they're, uh, they're raising their herds up there very traditionally, very thoughtfully, um, uh, pasture and, uh, but they are not able to bring those cheeses to some of the markets in the same way. And so they're, uh, trading them or bartering them or doing herd share programs in that sense. I know that some of that will be indigenous roots. And that's really where we want to start to dig deep, deep on that because there isn't that much commercial production out here and none of it is indigenous uh, produced out so far or any native produce. But there's obviously this long history of having um, dairy herds uh, in the area and that will bleed through into the pueblos that are here into some of the reservations that are here uh, into traditional families that are here um, who are both native New Mexican as well as native Mexican uh, and having that entire if you took the borders away from all of it um, the traditional history in those things even in in the little bit of time that we've been able to do and research through this shop and in the cheese guild I found some awesome information that we're super excited about um, from some uh, books that are traditional Navajo books um, of uh, cheese making that was happening um, in the late 1800s. I guess there's this book called The Beautiful Life with Livestock. And they talk about um, a traditional Navajo cheese um, that was uh, it's goat milk cheese, not salted. Uh, and they were sweetening um, the cheese actually by collecting fern from the mountaintops. And uh, that was in a cheesecloth um, as they drained away the whey and the curd. Now, in addition to that, and that would be some of like the herbal flavoring that was in it. In addition to that, they're also using, uh, it's a weed that we see out here all the time. It's called um, uh, silver leaf nightshade. If you were to look it up, it's all over the place. Everyone pulls it or sprays it or burns it or just gets rid of it. It turns out it's this very strange little uh, maybe foot-high plant, very, very spiky, um, whitish green leaves. It puts out these beautiful um, purple and white flowers that look like eggplant um, flowers or blossoms since it's in the nightshade family. But um, the berries that fruit from that are these really bright yellow berries that almost look like a little tomato. Turns out that um, Navajo, Cochiti, and Pima uh, uh, people traditionally used those unripe berries, green berries, before they actually turn yellow and ripe. They used those to coagulate the milk because the seeds have naturally occurring high amounts of rennet, just like cardoon or the thistle rennets that you see, those vegetarian rennets, this random southwestern northern mexican plant um silver leaf nightshade has naturally occurring rennet in the seeds so i'm very excited to start um playing with that to read more into that um uh into the traditional cheese making using that as a vegetarian rennet and then also this kind of fern seasoned um very like fresh farm cheese one of those fromage blancs or anything um and then also now talking to Navajo, Pima, and Cochiti 
um, uh, populations and seeing if there's anyone who has traditionally made these cheeses, um, especially because they're the sheep population in New Mexico used to be huge in the late 1800s um, and started to dwindle uh, as we went into the industrial era in the, the 40s and 50s. Um, I guess in the 30s, it really started to shift. But, um, you know, with this huge sheep milk uh, or with these huge sheep herds that used to be here, I know that there's going to be ways of saving and preserving and culturing sheep's milk that were, that were here prior. And diving into that is something that I think will be a very fun exploration for us and for the state. Wow, that is like really, really cool. Nathan didn't disclose that he's also um, got some heritage and um, some connections, not only to this land, but also is, is partially indigenous. So I think that's part of that story that is important. We're relearning our own history. Yeah. Some of that too, even when we were looking up that silverleaf nightshade and the berries, um, that fruit from that. Uh, so my, my grandfather was Yaqui, um, which is a Northern Mexican tribe, uh, indigenous. And um, uh, he's originally from Chihuahua, Mexico. And as I was looking up um, the use of the rennet from those berries, it turns out that that, and I'm going to draw a theory, do not quote me. I'm sure there's a strong chance I'm wrong, but I think probably what happened is with um, the use of that rennet from that berry um, actually was probably brought up from Northern Mexico because traditionally in Chihuahua, Mexico, asadero cheese was uh, being used, uh, was cultured or um curdled with those same berries from Silverleaf, um, which I thought was interesting because that was predating any of the cheesemaking that was happening in our area, um, probably by far. And so I'm interested to see what happens with that draw across the border from um, Navajo uh, Nation down to uh, Chihuahua, Mexico, and, and where Acidero cheese was made, was made. Yeah. I mean, listen, that is amazing research you have going on there. I'm I'm very excited to one day try these cheeses. Um, it's it's so cool that you're reconnecting the past and bringing forth your heritage. I mean, geez, what a, it's just so cool. That's why we're in this business to learn about stuff like that. Um, that is that is just really really cool. And so, would you be making this cheese if you were to, or with a cheesemaker working with them? Is this going to be in? Um, I know you were mentioning to me before a commercial cheese facility. Uh, would you be like testing these recipes out there? How is that going? Um, have you, I think there was a building in the works, but uh, refresh my memory on this. Um, yeah. Status of the, the commercial cheese. Facility. Yeah. So Sometimes, you know, I wonder, like it, it feels like it's all planned out, but it really, sometimes things just fall into place. And in, in creating the cheese guild, um, we were looking for some resources to sort of get started and to start the, the guild itself and have some infra infrastructure funding. And uh, one of the early members of the Cheese Guild was a representative, the executive director of a local entrepreneurial culinary training program called Street Food Institute. And they just recently um, had some funds and have been revamping a building space um, in, in a region of Albuquerque called Barelas. And Barelas is actually a little village, like Nathan was talking about Corrales being from north, 
the north part of, of Albuquerque. Barrelas is just a little bit south of downtown. And it was formally established actually in 1662. So it predates all of the other small neighborhoods of, of Albuquerque. And, um, you know, just for dating, right, it, it predates even the East Coast and some of the, you know, settlements on the East Coast. And so in going there, uh, in honoring the history and the community that lives in that neighborhood, it was really important and it continues to be very important that if we're able to, to pair up with Street Food Institute and maybe um, use some of the resources they have to train people on how to make cheese and maybe convert one of the warehouses that's behind them into a cheese aging facility, that we honor the local people communities that live there and the history that's there. It's just, it's a stone's throw away from the National Hispanic Cultural Center. And so in doing so, um, one of the things they suggested is, you know, a lot of people have backyard gardens and they are growing pomegranate trees or quinces. And, you know, it'd be great to use some of those ingredients in the cheese making or to pair with cheeses. Um, and, and so we thought, you know, like I've been noticing, I didn't get to go to ACS this last year, but I saw that Jessica Fernandez Lopez was up there and she was, you know, providing trainings and panels about Mexican cheese making. So I, I, I pinged her on Instagram and was like, Hey, we're, we're getting some stuff started in New Mexico. Would you like to come here and help us train new cheese makers? And she was so gracious and so thrilled and was like, Oh my gosh, I would love to do that. I would love to share how to make artisanal Mexican cheese with community members. And she's like, I can offer the training in Spanish and English. And, um, you know, I have, I have a team of people that will help me to, to, you know, pull this off and we can provide trainings, not only literally in the moment, but, you know, to help you with design as far as what equipment to buy and also what types of cheeses you might want to make. So we're excited. We're applying for some funding to be able to bring her team here to provide that training. And we're also applying for some funding that is actually USDA money that goes through our state agricultural department to be able to also um, convert one of the warehouse spaces into a cheese aging facility, which is no easy feat as those of you who, you know, have done that before. It's going to take a lot in order for us to be able to get a space that maintains the humidity that we need in order to do the aged cheeses. Um, but we're excited about it. And, and, you know, it, so far things seem to be falling into place. If we don't get the funding the first time we apply, we will absolutely revise and try again. But there's a lot of really exciting, fun stuff that's in the works. And it's really great to feel like the city, the county and the state are invested in this too. I think that they, they see the wisdom in having local, you know, a local terroir where we are making cheeses in New Mexico for New Mexicans using local ingredients because it'll taste different and it'll be better for us. And it'll draw people from the outside here to try our cheeses and maybe even carry them in other places. So um, it seems to be like everyone is really excited about it. Yeah. I mean, gosh, this is, um, I feel like you're going to be enlightening other states with all of the cool things that you guys are doing right now, all from your little cheese shop mouse hole. <laughs> it's like this grand, amazing, <laughs> inspirational story. I, uh, I want to thank you guys for reaching out to me for this one. I, I, it's so cool what you're doing out in Albuquerque and in the state of Mex New Mexico. I'm just like, I applaud you guys. My, my mind is blown right now. Um, Thank you for coming on the show today. Sure. Thank you so thank much you. for having us. Yeah, beyond thank you for, for the time that you spent uh, talking with us as well. It means a lot. 
Absolutely. No problem. All right. Well, I'm just going to tell the listeners where to find you guys. Uh, please follow Mousehole Cheese Shop on Instagram at MouseholeABQ. And you can follow the New Mexico Cheese Guild at NM Cheese Guild. Plus, you can follow us at Cutting the Curd and myself at Kara Warren. And please listen and subscribe to Cutting the Curd wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, please don't forget to give us a five-star review on wherever you listen to your podcast. It seriously helps us. Thanks, and eat more cheese. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.